The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let's turn to God's Word, Jonah chapter 1. We're beginning a, a four-week study in this book, Jonah, the very famous Old Testament book about Jonah and the whale, as it's sometimes called, although it doesn't say it was a whale, just called a great fish. Looking tonight about Jonah fleeing from the face of the Lord in Jonah chapter 1, let us look at God's Word as we begin this series. Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard And the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Jonah is a book about God. 
you see the sovereignty of God shine through in this book. You see the missionary heart of God. Above all, it is a book about the great compassion and love of God for sinners. Many of you have heard of Elizabeth Elliot. In fact, she spoke in our church about 10 years ago to a women's group, a packed women's group, I might add. She was the wife of Jim Elliot, who many of you know, again, the very familiar story about a half a century ago, who was a missionary to a remote tribe of natives in South America and who was doing pioneering work trying to contact this tribe, an unreached tribe, and he and uh, and three other men were all one day killed in a circumstance by the members of this tribe, violently killed. Some of you may not know, because you don't know much about the story, that Elizabeth Elliot later returned to help bring the gospel to that tribe with her infant daughter in tow, seeking to hold forth Jesus Christ to them, and was used by God in that way. Certainly, as we look at that, we would say that was an act of compassion and Christ-like love that reflects God sending his own son, going in mercy to those who had taken her husband's life. Well, Jonah was called by God to go to a foreign people, but we all know, and we just read chapter 1, that Jonah ran. Jonah said no. Jonah was the reluctant prophet. And we want to look at that tonight. Jonah prophesied very likely, this is the same Jonah described in 2 Kings chapter 14, who prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II in the kingdom of Israel. Jeroboam reigned from 782 B.C. to 753. So it's very likely that if this same Jonah, son of Amittai, and he's designated that way there as well, that this probably took place during those years. Jonah is presented in Scripture as an historical person. You hear, and you hear even in the evangelical world of our day, you hear the idea that Jonah is an allegory. In other words, it's not based on history. Or you hear that it's a parable of some kind. A parable is just a story that, you know, takes everyday ordinary kinds of circumstances and intends to make a spiritual point. The problem with both of those views, the either the allegorical or the parable view, is that Jonah is rooted in history. There are historical details given. We read in verse 1, Jonah, son of Amittai. He's called to go to a specific city, the city of Nineveh. In chapter 3, we read about him actually going there, preaching there. There are historical details throughout the book. Jonah is not allegory or parable. Jonah is prophetic narrative. And if Jonah does fit in where we said he did in history, he's coming shortly after the prophetic ministries of Elijah and Elisha. In fact, in 2 Kings 14, you could put the book of Jonah in 2 Kings 14 after Jonah is described, and it really wouldn't strike us as that much different from the miraculous occurrences that take place in the prophetic ministry of Elijah and Elisha. 
being fed by ravens, spiritually uh, a discipline from God of drought on the land, and Elijah prays, and finally after all these years, there's rain, raising the dead, healing the sick, all of these miraculous events, Jonah would fit very well in there. Of course, there are those who would discount the miracles of Elijah and Elisha as well. One of the most powerful arguments for Jonah being taken as prophetic narrative, as true history, is because of how Jesus describes it. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees come to him and seek a sign, and Jesus answered them in verse 39, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Talking about the sign of him being raised from the dead as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. And then Jesus says this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Do you see how that does not fit in with allegory or parable? Jesus is saying, at the judgment, the people, the men of Nineveh who repented when Jonah preached, they will, in a sense, stand up and condemn those of this generation who didn't hear the gospel and my preaching to you because I am greater than Jonah, Jesus is saying. Jesus treats Jonah as historical narrative, and we ought to as well. The primary theme of the book is God's great compassion. It's not limited to us, but it's also to them, whoever the them is. It's to pagan sailors. It's to evil Ninevites. And do we have hearts that are more and more conformed to God's heart? That's going to be a conviction that I hope that we wrestle with as we go through this book. There are other themes of of the book, God's sovereignty, the gospel going to all nations, the call to repent, and God's assurance that when we repent, he hears and he answers and he forgives. So these are all themes that we will see in the next weeks. But tonight we're looking at Jonah running from God and seeking to learn from chapter 1 and Jonah's fleeing from the face of the Lord. And so we want to look at this theme under three points. The first is this. Jonah's running from God shows spiritual decline. Jonah's running from God shows spiritual decline. We see this in verses 1 through 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. And three times, it's not in the NIV, but there's three times that the word Tarshish is repeated in verse 3. The word of the Lord came, Jonah runs. He ran the opposite direction. Nineveh was about 500 miles from Israel to the east or the northeast, you know, the fertile crescent. You kind of go north and then east in present-day Iraq. It would have been a long walk for Jonah to go there, but he went out his front door and did not head east. He headed west. 
the opposite way. And he headed to Joppa, the port city on the Mediterranean, where he flagged a ship. You can just see him saying, well, praise the Lord, I got a passageway on a ship headed for Tarshish. Now, we don't know for sure where Tarshish is. There's speculation about that. It's possible that Tarshish was on the far coast of Spain beyond the rock of Gibraltar. He said, give me passage on a ship to the far corner of the world, the known world at his time. As far as he could go, he was going there. He was running as far west as he could. And so in Jonah here, we see a refusal to fulfill his calling by God. Now, I had mentioned 2 Kings 14 and Jonah's description there. I just want to read a little bit about that to you. It says that it's speaking about Jeroboam, the king at this time. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath and so forth. And it says there, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath, Hefer. Here we have a brief mention of Jonah there. And the mention is stating that Jonah's prophetic word spoken at that time was being fulfilled by King Jeroboam II. Now, we don't know if that was before or after the book of Jonah takes place. We just don't know. But the point of this is that Jonah's prophetic word in 2 Kings 14 was described as being fulfilled. These certain things were done in accordance with the word of the Lord that had come through Jonah. Now, it could have been after the book of Jonah, but I tend to think probably it wasn't. That's just my opinion, that we would have said Jonah was a successful prophet before the book of Jonah takes place. In other words, he was a man who knew better. He was a man who knew God. He was a man who prophesied the word of God. I doubt very much that he was at the very beginning of his ministry. You know, he wasn't like an 18-year-old young prophet at this point. He could have been. In any case, we do know this. Jonah ran from God's call. Jonah ran from God's word. And it is very possible that he had been exercising his prophetic ministry for some time when this call to preach to Nineveh came. And we might ask, well, why? Why did Jonah run? What was he thinking? Well, it was because of maybe challenges that this would present. I mean, he's got to travel 500 miles, and that was a day and age that travel wasn't easy, especially going to foreign nations. And we could even add to that, well, maybe it was because of the dangers of going to this city of Nineveh, this great city. We'll find out more about it when we get to chapter 3. We would just say right now that already Nineveh was known for its great cruelty. Later on in the book of Nahum, we will read about Nineveh. Again, this was a couple generations after Jonah's day. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 can say, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. And to some degree, that was already being practiced in the Nineveh of Jonah's day. And so we could say, well, maybe in part, Jonah was running the other direction out of fear. Reminds me of Elijah fleeing from Jezebel. Remember that account in 1 Kings 19 when 
Elijah has that great experience uh, refuting the prophets of Baal and fire from heaven falls and consumes the offering and everything. And it seems like the most successful day in Elijah's life. And then he gets that letter from Jezebel, the queen, that little threat from her. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me at ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Speaking about the prophets of Baal who were put to death. And Jezebel saying, Elijah, I'm going to put you to death somehow. And Elijah flees. He's so discouraged. He runs. He goes to Beersheba. He leaves his servant there. And then he finally comes a day's journey into the desert. And we know the story. You probably heard it. He comes to a broom tree, a certain kind of tree that was there. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. And we know the Lord comes and ministers to him at that point. Elijah was fleeing. Possibly that's what Jonah was doing. We can understand running out of this danger or out of this sense of fear and how often we can ask ourselves, do we fail to testify for the Lord or fail to take a stand for the Lord or how often are we ashamed of the gospel in some way, even in the kinds of minor ways that we might face persecution or opposition to the faith in our society. That may be part of it, but the clearest reason for Jonah running the opposite direction is given to us later in the book, in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2. If you turn over a page, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah was angry, and we'll find out what he's angry about later on. And this is what he prayed in chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. What happens is in chapter 3, Jonah preaches and Nineveh repents And God relents and doesn't destroy them. And Jonah is praying here, this is why I ran away. I knew you were going to do this, Lord. I knew that if I came here, you would end up relenting, having compassion on them. And Lord, I really want the Ninevites destroyed, is basically what he's saying. He ran because he did not like the Ninevites. These were the enemies of Israel, a pagan, foreign not a God-fearing place. And Jonah, like all Old Testament prophets and believers to some degree, knew the grace of God, the undeserved mercy of God, the gospel in the Old Testament period, even though it was yet to be fully revealed in the person and work of Christ. And Jonah was afraid that God might just do this. And so his spiritual decline showed up in a heart that didn't want to see God's compassion poured out on Jonah's enemies. That's why he ran. That's the main reason we're told here in chapter 4. That's why he ran. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce uses the illustration of this. He says, think of yourself this way. Think if you were a Jew in New York City and God called you to go preach to the Nazis during World War II. And instead of doing that, you 
took a train to San Francisco and got on a slow ship to Hong Kong. And James Boyce says, that's what Jonah did. He did not want to see the Nazi Ninevites brought to Christ. He went the other way. I think a modern example might be, how would you have liked to have been called after 9-11, or even nowadays, to, if you were called by God and somehow you knew it was from God, to go to the remote mountains of Afghanistan and preach the gospel to the Taliban? That might be a similar kind of thing. You know, even with the danger factor there, you know, you might think, well, it won't be long and I'll be dead. The point that James Montgomery Boyce is saying is the real opposition was that Jonah didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. He didn't want to see them converted. He didn't want to see God have compassion on them. And so he ran. And so the application of this first point is just this. How do we observe spiritual decline in our lives? How do we see evidences of spiritual dullness and coldness of heart? And just the two areas that I would have you think about from Jonah's example here is One, a refusal to respond in faith and obedience to God's word. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go preach. And he refused. Spiritual decline shows up in refusing to believe God's word, refusing to obey God's word. And then secondly, spiritual decline shows up in a lack of God's love filling our heart. Spiritual decline shows up in not loving God others with the love that we've been loved by God, especially to our enemies or especially to our functional enemies, we might say, especially to those people in our lives who may be the most difficult to love. And the gospel comes to us and transforms our lives and God pours out his grace on us and he says, now be like Jesus Christ in that way to those around you. Who are the functional enemies in your life? Who are the people that are difficult in your life? How might you be hightailing it to Joppa right now in your life and in your experience, running the other way when God calls you to obey him? And as you see such decline, realize that the remedy is to go to Jesus Christ. We come to Jesus Christ needy and weak. We come sinful and failing but trusting his promises and trusting his power at work by the Spirit to renew us, to revive our dull and cold hearts, and to fan into flame his work within us by the Spirit. Jonah is no different from you and from me. Secondly, Jonah's running from God involved great cost. Jonah's running from God involved great cost. We see that there was a material cost. He got on board the ship and he paid the fare. It's interesting that it says after paying the fare, he went on board. He had to come up with the money for this trip on the ship. And that was not the only material cost. Later on, down in verse 5, the storm breaks out and the sailors have to throw the cargo into the sea. So all the cargo on the sea is lost. Of course, that wasn't Jonah's worry. But there was also a spiritual cost, and that's the more important cost. What was the spiritual cost? Well, we see the spiritual cost of Jonah running from the presence of the Lord or running from the Lord. Literally here, it's Jonah. Jonah ran away from the face of the Lord. 
and might be translated different ways in your Bible. Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was not ignorant. When Jonah runs and it says that he's running from the Lord or running from the presence of the Lord, I don't want you to have the idea that Jonah is just ignorant that we can't run away from God. It's not like Jonah didn't know that. This was an Old Testament prophet, mighty in the word of God. It wouldn't surprise me, but Jonah knew Psalm 139 by heart. Remember 139? Jonah probably knew that by heart when it says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, Tarshish, (laughs) I'm adding that, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Jonah would have known that. Jonah knew the word of God. Jonah, by the way, could have been an advanced graduate from the school of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. That's about the time period. You know how Elijah and Elisha started this school and it's alluded to and talked about? He probably had an advanced seminary degree from that school. And look how Jonah answered the sailor's question in verses 8 and 9. The sailors are getting all worried about this and, and they cast lots and, you know, Jonah's the one the lots say. It was the, he was the cause of it all. So, verse 8, so they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. Here we have Jonah confessing he, he worships, he fears the Lord who made the sea. Jonah knows going over the sea, he can't get away from the God who made the sea. And he's telling them this, and of course they tremble, they're really afraid now. But what Jonah is running from here, I think we are to understand this, when it says that he's, he ran from the face of the Lord He knows he can't run from God in the ultimate sense, but Jonah is running from the felt presence of the Lord. He is running from the pathway of faith and obedience. He's running from his calling. But even more poignantly, he's running from communion with his God. He's running from the spiritual comfort, the spiritual joy of walking with God, the true spiritual joy in the Lord. That's what he's doing. In New Testament terms, this is how I would describe it. As believers, we are united to Christ. We experience union with Christ by God's grace through faith. So a believer is united to Christ and has union with Christ, and nothing can separate us from Christ in that sense. Nothing can disrupt our union with Christ. Nothing is able able to take us out of the Father's hand. Jesus will complete the good work he's begun in us. That union cannot be severed. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But out of that union with Christ, we as believers experience communion with Christ. We fellowship with God. We experience his love poured out into our hearts. We pray to him. We commune with him. We hear him speaking to us through his word. We are comforted by the Spirit. All those are aspects of communion with Christ. They flow out of union. 
Now, union with Christ can't be interrupted. Can communion with Christ be interrupted? Yes. Our communion with Christ is interrupted when we sin. Our sin separates us from our God to some degree. Not ultimately, it doesn't disrupt, it can't disrupt our union, but our communion with Christ is often broken because of our unbelief, because of our sin, because of our disobedience. We can quench the Holy Spirit, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. Our sin can separate us. We're still saved, we're still united to Christ, but our communion is disrupted. Now that disruption in communion is the spiritual cost that Jonah experienced, and he was willing to pay as he ran from the Lord. And that's the cost that we pay as well when we run from the Lord. And the result for Jonah was he was a terrible example. The sailors are actually presented here in a more positive way than Jonah is. There's this play on words as you go throughout chapter 1, this word fear. And sometimes the NIV translates it worshipped or terrified or things like that. But as the chapter goes along, the sailors are afraid, they fear, and finally culminates in the sailors coming to worship to fear the Lord, Yahweh, instead of their gods. And Jonah was a bad example of them. The sailors, in a sense, show him up. And Jonah's ministry was powerless. It's going to be used by God, but not because of Jonah and his communion and his walk with God at all. And the irony here is in verses 5 and 6, the sailors were afraid, it says, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea. But Jonah, he's gone below deck. What is he doing there? He's, he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. No doubt that signifies, and no doubt he really did fall asleep, but no doubt it signified the spiritual stupor he was in, the dullness of heart he was experiencing. And the irony is there in verse 6, the captain of the ship, the pagan captain of the ship, went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. And the actual Hebrew wording there in verse 6 is the same words that God had called Jonah with in verse 2. Go, cry out. Arise, cry out. The same words are in the captain's mouth in verse 6. Arise, Jonah, cry out. It's like the captain is the Lord's vessel and instrument in waking Jonah up from his spiritual dullness. Shouldn't it have been the other way around? Shouldn't Jonah have been preaching to the captain? There's another storm Years after this, on that same Mediterranean Sea, a similar storm, a similar place, a different man, the Apostle Paul, in Acts 27, and you know there's a different response. And Paul is a man not running from God. He's a man aflame with the Spirit and the power of God through Jesus Christ, and he's preaching the gospel to the pagan sailors on his ship. That's quite a different story from what we have here. God works in both instances, but here, Jonah is not being an Apostle Paul, that's for sure. And maybe you're running from God in some way right now, maybe as a non-Christian even tonight, and you know that you are keeping God at arm's length. Well, you need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he calls you not to run anymore, but to run to him in faith, believing in him, putting your trust in him, and turning away from the way of sin. Or maybe as a Christian tonight, like Jonah, was a believer 
Maybe you're running from God in some way. Maybe there's some sin in your life. Maybe some bitterness over some great hardship you've been experiencing or some alienation you've been experiencing in a relationship that's really turned you in some way away from God and you don't know whether you can trust him or, or maybe some area of idolatry in your life that you've put before God and you've put it on the throne in God's place. Well, whatever the situation is, the remedy is the same to return to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and to come to him and turn away from whatever would be in his place and ask him on the basis of his word to forgive you, to cleanse you, to restore you to communion with Jesus Christ. Jonah is an example for us, and that's how God is going to work in his life when we get to chapter 2. But thirdly, I want us to see one final point. Jonah's running from God was overturned by God for good. Jonah's running from God was overturned by God for good. One of the great themes of the book of Jonah is the sovereignty of God over all events in this world. We see it in a number of different ways. We see it when they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah. God is sovereign over the lots that are cast. We see it in the storm. God is orchestrating the storm. It ends immediately when Jonah is thrown overboard. We see it at the end of chapter 1 and verse 17 when it says, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Literally, the Lord appointed a great fish. And later in chapter 4, we'll see that the Lord, that same word, the Lord appoints in verse 6, the plant that grows up and shades Jonah. He appoints in verse 7, the worm that eats the plant. And he appoints in verse 8, the east wind to blow. The book of Jonah describes a sovereign God ruling over the events of this world, all the way from the worm to the plant to the raging sea. Everything is under God's sovereign rule and show God's absolute control over all things. But in chapter 1, when we come to the climatic conclusion in verses 15 and 16, and really verse 17 goes with chapter 2. So really verses 15 and 16 are the conclusion, the climax of Jonah chapter 1. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. God's sovereign hand. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. This is the culmination of all the other fears that we've seen leading up to this point. They greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. We see that these pagans are affected very deeply spiritually, and it could very well be that this is their conversion, that they come to the true God. They worship the true God. So how is Jonah's running from God overturned for good? Well, number one, we've just seen here, God uses a wayward Jonah to convert pagan sailors. Of marvels, amazing, that Jonah in such a backslidden state is used by God. He's very reluctant, running from God. Apparently from verse 10, he had already told them that he's running from Yahweh, from the Lord, He doesn't tell them much else about him because they have to go back and ask him, now tell us, we know you said you're running from your God. Who are you? And you can just see them. I'm a prophet of the God who made everything. What? Oh, no. That must be a really big God. You know, they don't understand all this at this point, but the light's beginning to dawn. And Jonah is used by God. And and what we see here is that God's great power is, 
His amazing compassion shines forth in this chapter in this way. The conversion of these pagan sailors is really a foreshadowing, a precursor of the amazing conversion and revival of the Ninevites in chapter 3. We're going to see Jonah preach there and multitudes come to God. Think of it. Jonah was about the most reluctant witness for Yahweh that there could be. He wanted to go down under deck and sleep. He didn't want to talk to anyone. He had told them he was running from God. But what does God do in his grace and in his power? He uses a weak vessel. He uses a reluctant prophet. He uses a sinful vessel. He uses backsliding Jonah to work in these sailors' lives. Now, that's not an excuse for you or for me to rationalize our spiritual drifting. I shouldn't say, oh, good, now I can, I can run from God, and you'll still use me somehow, Lord. I know that you can do that. No, we shouldn't rationalize that way. It is a reason, though, to glory in the greatness of God, the power, the compassion of God to save sinners using the most weak instrument. And it should encourage us, even when we think that we're often like Jonah to some degree, running from God, weak in faith, wrestling with our own remaining sin, and yet, praise be to God, He's at work in our lives. The other thing we see God do in terms of instrumentality here is that God uses Jonah's running to prepare him to preach to Nineveh. Not only does he convert the sailors through him, but he's using this running from God to prepare Jonah. Because of his running and because of the discipline God's going to bring in Jonah's life, he's going to put him in the belly of the fish God was going to humble him in a new way. God was going to show him his grace in a new way. We'll get to chapter 2 in this amazing prayer of repentance and faith Jonah prays. That's a result of God's work through this circumstance of Jonah running. It wasn't right for Jonah to run, but what we're seeing is that God would use even Jonah's running for Jonah's spiritual good and for God's glory. Jonah would be humbled. Jonah would be spiritually renewed and recommissioned for his ministry to Nineveh. It's true that we'll see further evidence of Jonah's remaining sin. We're going to see chapter 4 and Jonah's remaining coldness of heart. But God is still at work. And the book of Jonah is clearly not a book about a great man. There's no danger here that we're going to be setting Jonah up on a pedestal and saying, now, just go out and be like him. No, Jonah is a book that it's very evident that the hero is God, not man. It's a book about a great God. And so I just conclude by asking you, where are you this evening with God? To whatever degree you're running, I hope that you'll return by trusting Jesus Christ and turning away from sin, treasuring Jesus Christ above everything else in your life. Whatever discipline God may have in your life right now, and he disciplines all those whom he loves and accepts as sons, whatever discipline God puts in your life, accept it as from his hand, as a springboard to deeper communion with him. And if you can say honestly from your heart tonight, I'm not running from God at all. Well, praise be to the Lord. Then thank him for his grace, which keeps you strong in him. And if you're not running from God and if you're experiencing rich communion, then you know that it's by grace that you stand 
and let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. And rejoice and continue to drink deeply from the true communion that we have with God through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for Jonah, for his example, for really the example of you at work in the midst of our brokenness and sin. Thank you that you are such a God. We come to you now and ask that you would lift us up through Jesus Christ. Amen.